excited for Chris Reeve to take me away. I'm going to be honest with you. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, the podcast where we talk about movies on occasion, but more so in this episode because Cody's not here. It's just me and the co-host I have wished for using my wishing stone, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Okay, Mike, I appreciate you bringing me back to life. I don't understand why I was resurrected as... A Wendigo of some sort? I appreciate the extra hair. I'm not complaining about the extra hair. It's just, I feel like I'm in a world I never made at this point. Um, well, no insult to a live World War One era, Jamie, who probably would not have been actually allowed on the front lines due to discriminatory actions. Lousy doughboards. I know. I wanted a Jamie for me, and... Not to be selfish, but a Jamie for me would be a Wendigo. I thought the antlers would look cool. Um, it's more the, the the longing for human flesh I take issue with because that that just distances me, like you know, socially. Because you know, you don't want to be at a dinner party and you know look over somebody you're being introduced to and think, oh, yummy, I'd love to have their calves. You don't do that. Not in a way as conspicuous as whenever I'm a Wendigo. Serious question. Um. You've never, have you ever looked at like a human being and thought like if they were to be eaten, they might be delicious? Occasionally, usually with people who got a lot, a lot going on in the trunk, if you know what I mean. See, I, I go for more of like the meat. I'm dead serious. I can't believe I'm admitting <laughs> this. I'm, uh, <laughs> we know you are, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> like calves, like super muscular calves, be like, okay, it, 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 it's like looking at, you know, a really like good cow or deer and like okay that they would be delicious i feel like the same or if you see like a chicken with like really big tits i haven't eaten today so i don't know if this is like playing into it at all but i'm sure that's going to be a kfc commercial soon just the colonel just massaging a chicken's tits played by john goodman I can't wait to see who KFC is going to have fucking the chicken this month. I love their stunt casting. Japan would love it. Um, me going Jeffrey Dahmer aside, we're here to talk, which is kind of 80s related. So <laughs> does that count as a segue? <laughs> you know, it was really he murdered dark a lot of people in the 80s. Um, we're here to discuss the most hated movie in the world for reasons that puzzle and confuse us. Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah, we're going to get this uh, out of the way right up front. As far as this podcast is concerned, Wonder Woman 1984, hot fire. The hottest of fires. I do want to take one second, like not to go into like a discussion. I just kind of want to say a bit of sociological peace on this. <laughs> Um, Wonder Woman 1984 now is rotten on Rotten Tomatoes, and it's just even pe even critics who dislike the movie seem to be confused by the sheer hatred and discourse of the film, which is interesting. Um, I think the reaction to it would have been very different if it was not put on a streaming service. I think this is kind of a a view into the future of what would happen if you're able to completely live tweet a film, essentially. Um, 
the internet loves to, uh, I've said this, the internet loves to volley hate back and forth. So it becomes one upmanship once the first person kind of opens the floodgates of like making fun of something. And when you're not, and you, when you're just making fun of it as it goes, because it's, it's tonally a little bit different, um, though not that different from most other comic book movies. Um, and you're just live tweeting and not watching the whole film, and then everyone just starts doing the same. It just becomes one-upmanship of jokes and hates and how much one can dislike it, and the conversation becomes about that and not the actual film. And I think that's kind of a scary prospect of live tweeting a big blockbuster release that we normally would be trapped in the theater for until we can give our thoughts and watching with people who are also experiencing that with you and not just making fun of it with you from across the country. Yeah, I think a lot of it stems from that. We're, we're not going to go with a you know, play by play of like, here's everyone's complaints and we're going to like, I, we don't have any interest in joining that discussion. I just think Wonder Woman 1984 is going to come around and find the audience will refine it at some point. It will find its audience and it will be appraised in history as what it is. It just bums me out something, especially at this time that's so positive and has such a strong message that is very appropriate for this year, has been completely condemned. And what it's about is been completely ignored. And it's not saying it's not a movie that has doesn't have problems, that it's not necessarily as good as the first one. But the complaints are so wild and out there, and it bums me out to see people go in such an opposite direction of the film in an effort to get clout, essentially, yeah. when it's kind of the opposite of what we needed. It's, I don't know, it, it would have been nice to see people embrace the message of the film. I think it would have been different if it came out a year ago when it was originally supposed to come out. But, you know, that that's, I think, live tweeting, I, I think... The ability of the streaming service to do that, and uh, it scares me for what's to come next for any big releases that are to drop on HBO Max or any any other streaming service. Especially with the amount of resentment people are starting to build up towards uh, streaming services like Disney Plus and HBO Max for wanting to bypass studios altogether. Like a lot of people are going into these movies wanting them to eat shit since they symbolize yeah. what is in some ways a necessary but still a very sad uh, turn of events for the movie industry. And don't get me wrong, I'm not wholly against going straight to streaming due to the current circumstances. I think people need to understand that movie studios need to survive too. And I mean, it's not that it's not their fault of what's happening with theaters and what's happening across the country. I, I think the hate needs to be directed towards correct governmental leaders in that regard and not movie studios saying that everything i'm going to blame at&t and not warner brothers here did with the hbo max direct to streaming releases for the upcoming year is absolutely horrible and fuck them and i want a lot of those movies decisions to be reversed now but that's a whole other can of worm at&t your internet service sucks please do not disconnect our internet service um yeah, can can you speed up my um, phone speed data to more than one fucking megabit down, though? That'd be cool. Um, I've only been yelling at you for 11 months now, so fuck you. Release Dune. <laughs> I love that Dune must always be tied to contention no matter what. 
It's the curse of the spice. Uh, but back to just talking about the lovely film called Wonder Woman 1984, the movie that's been coming out for 800 years now. We have been trapped in a purgatory of Wonder Woman 84 about to be released for about a solid year now. So you, you just re- you just rewatched it right before recording. Mm-hmm. So what was your like now that you know what to expect? And granted, I actually kind of had the film spoiled for me like a year ago. Um, not intentionally, but it's just one of those things where you're like, this Reddit post has all the information. You just kind of read, like, you, th- you just assume it's fake. So you just kind of read it for entertainment purposes. And then, like, uh, a trailer comes out that confirms everything about <laughs> what the Reddit post was. And you go, fuck, I just spoiled the entire movie for me accidentally. I know, um, we've gotten to where Reddit accidentally uh, gets things right a lot of the time now. And I don't, I don't like that. I miss being able to just scroll through that stuff and laugh. I need to get all my movie news from 4chan now where it's completely <laughs> false at all times. Um, so now that you knew what to expect going in, what was, what was your takeaway the second watch around? Very, very clearly, nowhere near what the first movie was, both in terms of execution, like overall quality, story, and probably most clearly uh, execution of theme. I think the first film knew exactly what points it was trying to hit, and for the most part, hit them expertly. This movie sprays around themes uh, and plot points a bit more like Buckshot. Nebulous comes to mind. (laughs) It does hit 90% of the points it tries to make. It doesn't hit them anywhere near as well as the first movie did, and it doesn't You don't come away feeling like you had a very concise message delivered to you, but what it's trying to say and what it mostly ends up saying is in some ways more powerful than what they were going for in the first movie. Like Both movies are very wrapped up in the concept of truth. The first movie, it's made very literal. Wonder Woman is given a false narrative about how the world works and about her own birth. Slowly through the process of the movie, she sheds off all of these preconceived notions and through that kind of achieves a, a, a sort of godhood. She's almost like a, a Jim Starlin a cosmic consciousness character at that point. <laughs> oh, definitely. In 84, we see 1D get drug back down to Earth by the fiction of a life with Steve that she could never truly pursue. And again, because that's a lot more nebulous and we don't quite, at least in the the third act, we don't get quite as much of a uh, definitive payoff to all that stuff that you get in the first. I understand entirely walking away feeling like, okay, that was some stuff taking place and I think it had a lot to do with the truth setting you free, but I don't know what to make of it. Again, it's one of those films where you're not entirely sure what it's all about until the end. So rewatching it the second time, you pick up on a lot more, a lot more ways the uh, themes of truth and rejecting propaganda uh, is woven throughout the the story of the film. And I will say, while not as strong narratively as the original, I kind of found myself enjoying the action a lot more this time around. Like there are some. Big superhero action set pieces. Oh, the action is definitely top notch. So much of Diana Terminator running. <laughs> and I didn't even realize she was missing like the sword and shield at all until it was pointed out like a week later to me. Oh, yeah. I love how 
insistent Jenkins was this time around that Wonder Woman does not use weapons. And specifically notes throughout the film that she hates weapons and will not use them. Which I like. It gave more lasso of truth action, which was good. It kept that that vein going throughout the film to remind you that it exists. Even if it starts getting some weird powers, but it's powers <laughs> that make sense. Yeah, I'm full. I'm fine with the lasso having a bullshit Dr. Manhattan plot revelation powers just from how nebulous that thing's always been. Technically, it's not even supposed to make you tell the truth. That's just a thing that got inferred after a while. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a magic bullshit thing from a comic book. I mean, it's it's not be it's not get like too precious about it. One thing I can, I can imagine uh, giving people a little pause, I think definitely does play better the second time around is the movie structure. If you're going into this expecting something like the first film or even just something like most Marvel movies where there is a very clear, uh, very powerful villain established early on and the rest of the narratives are wrapped around stopping that villain, like, you're not going to find that here. This honestly has more in common with the Ant-Man films, if I'm comparing it to anything at Marvel. This is, up until the third act, a very low-stakes movie, a very... Almost a Wonder Woman slice of life story for a great deal yeah. of it. You just kind of catch up with Diana, with how she's living her life. And towards the end of the 20th century, her struggling to make friends uh, in the new world. Her going around town doing Wonder Woman things without fully revealing herself yet. It very much feels like you just picked up an issue of a Bronze Age George Perez Wonder Woman comic off the rack. And you're just... Flipping through it to see what uh, Diana and Barbara and Maxwell Lord are doing this week. It definitely captures the tone of a Perez comic, like not not even one of the, like the necessarily one of the big ones, like necessarily even Gods and Mortals or anything like that. Just a random issue that kind of builds into one of the bigger end of year storylines that gets the color palette down. It gets the tone down. It gets it's that Diana specifically. It feels like. That's what I love so much about it. It felt like the first film was, it definitely had a lot of Perez in it. It almost felt more Rucka in the first film. Yeah, like this I, I definitely feel Definitely that. like 80s Perez, perfect age Wonder Woman, and all the magical stuff that kind of, it, it has the pacing of it, I think. Like, I, I appreciate the escalation of the film. Even if it starts to get maybe a little bit too nebulous in its escalation to me it kept the pace going throughout the length of the picture which could get yeah, i'm never bored be a burden, i quite liked it yeah you're never bored because there's a perfect escalation to what's happening with max and his powers like the way everything snowballs into a gigantic catastrophe is like to me perfectly handled and that it's a hard thing to handle like with wishes getting out of control <laughs> that's not something most superhero mu movies are used to managing like I, I love how all of the stuff with max just plays out like a b story that you would occasionally return to in a bronze age comic that wouldn't become the main story until like four issues later oh yeah for some reason i'm reminded of um like something happening in the background of like saga of the swamp thing <laughs> like Matt Cable being possessed. Oh, yeah. Like like, to and it becomes the biggest deal in the world. That's what I love so much about how uh, Barbara Minerva and Maxwell Lord were portrayed in this. They're not written at all like 
characters who are being seeded to become big deals in a, in a cinematic universe or to be like giant comic book villains. They feel like characters from a smaller comic book story, specifically a smaller Wonder Woman story, which often deals with just regular everyday people rubbing elbows with the supernatural and the cosmic and being changed by it. Yeah. Like Maxwell Lord is absolutely a dude in an old comic book who gets cosmic power and becomes corrupted and must be stopped within 48 hours. (laughs) Which is something I really appreciate about the film. There wasn't larger connotations of the and i think that's something people are struggling to grasp which is cheetah and max are built throughout the film to be the villains of the film not to say like cheetah can't go on and i would love to see more maxwell lord but his story feels complete even if it ends on kind of a strange note it feels complete he was taken to guantanamo bay after this don't worry oh he was tortured and executed actually (laughs) as was his son We get Pedro Pascal as his own son in the third film, wanting revenge against Wonder Woman. (laughs) Oh, it's kind of racist because his son's Asian. It's okay, Mike. Magic. He wished his son not to be Asian? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the son wished for for his father's success. We don't know what backwards 80s way they could have meant that. Did that ever come up in the film? No. That's that's a weird thing. As, as far as the wishing goes, that is one where I will totally admit that plot point is really weak and con- and contradictory. <laughs> Needed like an afternoon of rewrites just to get the rules and the consequences clear. Because Ma- they give Max such a awesome power. That is super yeah. unique and I've never seen like in a comic bo- book before. They just make him the Jin from the Wishmaster series. Like he makes magical deals. Yeah, and the fact he can choose whatever he wants to be the trade-off of the wish. That's fucking awesome. I, I don't like Maxwell in the comics that much. To me, he's very generic. There's not anything particularly interesting about him. I don't know why... Ev- like a lot of DC villains, mediums outside of the comics seem to be obsessed with him. Well, it's funny when you look at the comics, especially the comics from the era this is set in, and Maxwell Lord is just a sitcom rich guy who hangs out with the Justice League a lot and is snooty. <laughs> Which is what another thing I do love about this Max is they're comic accurate in the sense that Max is just a a sort of well-meaning buffoon who's not actually evil, but totally becomes evil the second he's introduced to power. Yeah, which is the more interesting version of Max that I think gets lost a lot, especially in like modern times where he's just Lex with some power. Oh, the, the most boring thing ever done with this character was making him full supervillain. Yeah, and the, and the last minute reveal pretty much setting up why his character is what he is, even if it's part of more of a nebulous, like I keep nebulous is the word to me that goes with a lot of the stuff in the third act. Um, Nebulous reveal of his childhood abuse. And that's where his, like his self truth of where his inferiority complex comes from being revealed to him. And like, Oh, he's not, there's nothing particularly evil about Max. He's just so obsessed with being self-serving and making up for what happened to him as a kid and trying to prove himself that he's destroying the world around him, which is more or less a perfect description of most people in power. And 
the world at large and where selfishness comes from. Even playing against, I think it was brilliant um, how the president is played, where he's kind of Reagan a little bit, but also kind of not. And he wants nukes more out of fear than anything else. And when it kind and when it happens, I think it's a brilliant line where he's told the Soviets are launching nukes, and he just kind of goes, "Well, we would have done the same for even less." I mean, meanwhile, if that were actually Reagan, he just would have wished for unlimited nukes and destroyed the world immediately. Yeah, um, and I assume for like minorities not to exist or anything. Reagan was a horrible human being. The worms in my brain are telling me to nuke the sun. Every actor who worked with him hated him. Um, uh, he ratted out uh, leftists whenever he was head of the actors' union in the forties. Horrible man. Not even that good of an actor. Anyway, bedtime for um, Bonzo. Decent bit player. Whenever he shows up to say like six lines and something. <laughs> Ugly man. Glad he died horribly playing with his own poop. I assume. Um, vote Democrats for. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten lost in the Reagan joke. What were we talking about again? <laughs> the complexity of the president in Wonder Woman 84. Oh, yes, yes. And to me, that was like where like that reveal of Max and like what self-truth is to me was more of um more of a stronger point. I think for the film should have focused on is I think they tried to play too fast and loose with a philosophical idea of truth. Yeah. And the first film ends with just the perfect note of, you can sum up the entire film with the line, love can save the world. You can't really, despite ending on a full on speech with Dinah, which I love, that's how you end a Wonder Woman story is Dinah giving a fucking speech. You can't sum up what the film's about, but if you focus solely on like, what's going on with Max as the through line for the messaging of the film, then you can get like a more strong point and almost feels like Max actually makes a stronger main character in that regard. Yeah. Well, it's like there, that moral is interwoven throughout the film. Like if I had to struggle to find like an elevator pitch for what this movie is about, I guess it would be uh, if you choose to live under delusion and enforce that on everyone around you you will destroy the world you live in you can't which, build off a lie which is summed up beautifully in the moral lesson of the opening prologue and you see that with other characters like barbara like i really love how as wonder woman's opposite uh, barbara's character arc is played as kind of a deluded female empowerment story where Barbara is under the impression that she's becoming empowered like Wonder Woman when actually all of her power and uh, status is just ultimately to serve some dude and is at the cost of her actual individuality, which is very subtle. And again, it's, it's something that feeds into the overall messaging of the film, but there's like a beat or two missing to really connect it all together. Yeah. Whereas you look at a movie like a Spider-Man Far From Home, which plays with very, very similar themes and is able to present all that in a way where uh, the, by the time you reach the end of that film, you can see how everything you've seen up until this point is feeding into this one main message. 84 is a lot more of a uh, ride homer, which again, is why it's not an ideal pick for WB's first tweet along movie. Yeah, um... 
like it's hard to even discern far from home was as a I'd even think about that comparison, but it, they do they do are kind of perfect side by side, uh, not necessarily comparisons, but they're playing with the same realm and the same perfect analogy for the times we live in. Um, <laughs> I, I think the I think the biggest issue is Diana's story with Steve and the way her wish works confuses the overall concept of truth because you don't really understand fully what that truth is in regards to this. I will be confused by Steve's resurrection for the rest of my natural life. And it's actually quite a simple concept, but they don't hone in. Like, you can infer a lot. Like, I could probably bullshit something together as to how that plays into the larger idea of truth. But really, it's just, well, Diana just can't move on and to me it's still a good story it's nice in 84 i like diana's arc of having to let go and I, I think it's summed up great steve essentially says like i've been dead this whole time like you're not killing me again i've never been alive since that day and one of like the best scenes in the movie oh absolutely how it plays into truth be it philosophically or on a on a grander like propaganda almost scale I, I i don't understand i've been thinking about this a lot since watching watching it the first time and i, I know the one thing we return to over and over when we've discussed this in private is the baffling decision to have steve return as some kind of psychic ghost man they made him dead man He's fucking, he's fucking dead man possessing a dude's body, essentially, <laughs> uh, instead of just having him come back from the dead. And I've been racking my brain to kind of reverse engineer why they would go that way. Did they not want the stone to have the ability to resurrect, to actually resurrect the dead? But if that's the case, then isn't it kind of a cheat for him to come back as a mind ghost? But as far as I can tell, I think what they were going for was... They wanted Steve coming back to life to be at the cost of another man's life, and by that token, to be a lie, something Diana can't have. Like, Steve says clear as day, I've always been dead. He was never really back. It was essentially just making some other dude like Steve, which again, I wish kind of wish they would have went into lore-wise, like the idea of... Diana just projecting her memories of Steve onto a random dude would have been a lot more interesting than whatever ghost shenanigans are going on. Yeah, it feels like that's probably where they started. I think if they, maybe they show Diana on a date with this guy, maybe at the beginning of the film or like they meet at like that restaurant she's eating at or something. And because she can't let go of Steve, she can't really see this guy essentially. And that's why he's chosen. So essentially, she refuses to see him so she projects steve essentially through the wish and there's a way to make it work and a way to make the fact she's living some kind of lie work i mean it doesn't make the creepy stuff about the whole thing go away but instead it's it's the wish is kind of an island in the overall theme of the picture i mean i do love the idea of Steve's semi-resurrection coming at the cost of uh, the gradual loss of her powers. I like the idea that, like, in the same way Spider-Man's powers are tied to confidence and self-esteem, Diana's powers are tied to truth. Like, even though she's losing her powers for, like, a very, like, literal reason, she made a wish that was the cost, 
I love how Wonder Woman cannot exist as Wonder Woman if she's living a lie. Which, again, is something that's yeah. built off from the first movie, where the more truth Diana learns and accepts, the more powerful she comes until she's just a living god. Like, I love how only by uh, rejecting Steve and making an earnest attempt to forge on with her life, Diana's able to lasso the sky and fly across the crowds. It's like one of the most beautiful fucking sequences i've seen in a superhero movie in ages oh that that's top five i think that flying scene and the scene of diana and steve flying through the fireworks like that is the kind of spectacle that you can only get from a superhero movie like if i were to rationalize why superhero movies are a worthy entry into cinema how they give us something that only this these type of movies can. I would point to that fucking fireworks scene. Yeah, it's pure awe. After everything that's happened you know, the last 12 months or so, those two scenes were like a breath into fantasy and just awe that was so welcome. This is why superhero stories exist. I think that's one of the reasons I've developed so much affection for this movie. There's so much awe and amazement and delight from all of the characters in this movie. Nobody in this movie is a bad time to be around. The most charming character in it is the villain. I'd I'd buy whatever Black Gold is selling. (laughs) I'd I'd let Simon Stagg turn me into Metamorpho. I'm glad we both had the same reaction to Simon Stagg showing up. Which is just just cheering. (laughs) Confusing the people around us. Uh, yeah, you were William Sadler for an episode of The Flash. <laughs> Which Simon is in continuity Stag with this because of the multiverse. It's true. Uh, I love how Simon Stagg is forever the dude who just shows up for like two scenes and never ends up fulfilling the Simon Stagg stuff <laughs> of the comic. But, like that's just what his thing is in live action. He is cameo comic book character. It's like any time a Roxxon executive shows up. Exactly. It's like you're not going to do any Roxxon shit. But I'm glad that you're here. The logo's here, so I'm happy. We'll get CEO Minotaur one day. <laughs> yeah, going back to Steve again, I think it would have been to also get rid of the body swap and play into the lie aspect. I think if Steve was resurrected literally as some sort of intangible being that only Diana could see, but as her powers fade off, he becomes more real. Oh, yeah. That, 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 that would, yeah. Would have been a perfect analogy. I've given this a lot of thought. <laughs> We've been working around the clock to make 84 less creepy. It's true. Um, the creepiness really freaks me out. The fact Patty Jenkins doesn't see it gives me pause. But um, uh. I think that that would have been good because it would have played gr- perfectly into the themes. It would have made the power swap of it more clear, especially like per the symbolism you've brought up. Instead, it almost feels more like just a basic Superman 2 riff. And the fact her powers don't completely go away, she just gets kind of injured. I do appreciate the makeup team's futile attempt to make Gal Gadot look like shit. <laughs> she has some slight battle damage. Though, honestly, not that much more battle damage than you saw like necessarily the first film, so that was interesting. Yeah, I think there's ways to make that work. I think it would have strengthened the overall theme of the picture as well. Because I think every... Every movie's theme, especially in superhero movies, the audience is always going to view that theme through mainly the eyes of the main character. So when it's stronger along the lines of 
the ancillary characters and the greater world, all because it's very readable there. If it's not happening in a clear, concise way to the main character as a way to view it, or if the main character is not viewing it to the world, essentially, it gets lost. So when you have to sit back and go, okay, I have to remove to more clearly understand the movie. I have to remove Wonder Woman from it. That becomes to me, that's the greatest issue of the picture outside of the creepy body swap part. I think a a comparison we've made a a lot the past two weeks has been Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Although I will say 84 is a significantly better film than that. Uh, There's a lot of ballyhoo over perceived flaws in this movie, which kind of obscures the fact that there are a handful of very serious, very worth talking about flaws that do need to be addressed. Yeah, I I think... I wish more people would discuss those actual flaws because they are definitely worth discussing and worth learning from. And I think very important to both the building of superhero movies in production phases or just, you know, general cinema that these problems are very story building blocks that are not strong foundations for an overall uh, film. And I love the movie. Like, it's, to me, one of the best as far as superhero movies go. If it was in theaters, I think it would have been a completely different beast. But the founda- certain foundations of where the story is built were not good foundations for what the film was trying to do and hurt pretty much everything about it. And that bugs me. And I think it's worth, like, like really examining and looking at. So... These problems do not ever happen again. Well you, well, you said it perfectly a moment ago whenever you said there's a lot to learn from. Like The flaws of 84 aren't critical movie-ruining flaws. They're a series of teachable moments that I think everyone making these types of movies needs to learn from. Just because 84 goes in so many new directions that are pretty uncharted. As far as these movies go, somebody had to plant the flag down first. And when that happens, there's always going to be accidents. And thank God it does something new. That's something I enjoyed the hell out of it for is, yeah, it does harken back a lot to maybe like like Superman or Superman 2 and a few other things. And of course, there's just basic how both sequel superhero sequels work and both how superhero comic book stories work that it harkens back to and and takes from. It does so many different things with both how the MacGuffins work, um, how how villains are played, uh, overall structure, overall type of story, the fact it doesn't end on a a giant CGI fuckfest of some kind. Almost as a middle finger towards the ending of the first film, which we now know was semi-forced upon Patty Jenkins. Yeah. Um, And granted, I do think it, goes a little bit too hard in the opposite direction i I just want more cheetah fight give me more cheetah don't tease us i would have liked to have seen cheetah i know it's supposed to be nebulous as to whether or not is that word again um nebulous (laughs) as to where not whether or not she actually relinquished her wish and i i assume the the idea there is that she didn't if you're you know if you're playing coy about it is that she didn't actually relinquish her wish just max taking away his wish removed hers 
Now, they're going to find some reason for Kristen Wiig to be the exact same age in the third movie set in the modern day. So, I know we haven't seen the last of Cheetah. Pretty much. I would have liked to have seen Cheetah just remain in her form there and just kind of, I, I don't know. Um, Skedaddle away. Yeah, but I guess we kind of get the same thing, it, it ending on a question mark for her, but... That's the one area where I wish they would have just gone the Marvel route and not had her become Cheetah and all and just save that for another movie. Because I, I was perfectly fine with this version of Cheetah just being Kristen Wiig in Cheetah print. Honestly, that, that was even better than her monster look. I, I just, she needed to do the transformation a little bit earlier. Yeah, I don't know why they waited until after the scene where she first kicks Wendy's ass and meets Max, because that was the moment you should change her into Cheetah. Or just have her become Cheetah slowly as an an outcome of her wish, like uh, Diana's powers faded. I, I did like the um, bit of her being into cryptids. So when she wishes to become an apex predator, she becomes a monster woman. That was a nice little bit. Yeah, I, I would have like loved to have seen like a scene or two of pre-wish... Uh, Barbara just to get a bit more bead on her personality because that was such a, a nice uh, I thought that was a really nice take on that character I love Barbara yeah I love her identity like her rivalry with Diana not c coming from even like a, a sense of jealousy or competition which is usually Cheetah's thing I like how Barbara's just mad at Diana because she's spoiling her fun yeah like she's just being a fucking cop who's ruining her good time so she has to go down which is perfect for Cheetah and the fact that Barbara sees the consequences of her wish, her losing of her her goodness and everything that was real about her that actually made her really interesting and good to talk to and everything she thought was a wasn't true about her, like her self-truth. And she's losing all of that, but she doesn't actually care. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. Yeah. And I love how I, I was a bit wary uh, with this take on the character at first from the trailers and everything, because I was worried they were going to do the super cliche, like, 90s teen movie thing of, oh, Kristen Wiig's so ugly because she has glasses and frizzy hair, and then she's going to transform into a hot chick by just taking it off and wearing nicer clothes. And they do that, but the film seems very aware that nothing has actually changed about Barbara in that aspect. Like, I love how it's played as though it's entirely a mental change. Like, she doesn't spontaneously yeah. become more attractive. She just has confidence all of a sudden, which she's completely deluded about, which I think is really perfect. Yeah, it's pure delusion. It's, it's so good about that entire transformation. And once again, the fact she doesn't care, plays so good up against losing her powers is, oh, I'm just being, I'm becoming a terrible person. I don't care. Like, I want more of that, if anything. It, it's such a, it's such a sad fall into villainy at that point, which also plays perfect against Max, who realizes the truth about himself and the truth of what's happening and just wants to make it go away at that point, the last minute. And Barbara's the exact opposite. Just 
no, I want to be a complete fucking monster. Yeah, it's very, it's like, it feels like an escalation of what they were doing psychologically with Selina and Batman Returns, just played to the magical extreme, which is great because I've always been such a huge fan of that take on Selina. And I like the idea of doing that with a full-fledged super villain where you can go super literal with that kind of transformation. What we're saying is more Cheetah, please. Cheetah was probably one of the best parts of the movie. Like, I could watch Kristen Wiig just go through that arc over and over again forever. Wiig has gotten a lot of shit over the years for uh, being part of uh, an era of Saturday Night Live that's not remembered very fondly. But I've always really loved her as, like, a comedic actress. She's very, uh, she's a perfect Dan Aykroyd straight man. And she can be scary as fuck whenever she wants to, as we saw in, uh, mother and in certain parts of this like i i would really love to see her spread her wings as like a genre actress after this could you imagine a horror movie with Kristen wig oh i would love that she's such a great just straight drama actress too like she's like great in the martian and and whatnot i almost forgot about her in mother let's not forget her greatest performance in paul oh yeah we need to do commentary for paul best titty farting sleep i ever took <laughs> so yeah what we're saying is more cheetah Cheetah gets a spinoff. We're getting a... They announced that fucking uh, trench monster spinoff for Aquaman two years ago. Green, green light a cheetah movie. Get it? Give us an HBO Max cheetah series that takes... That charts her course from the end of 84 to her regaining her powers at the beginning of the next Wonder Woman movie. And she she meets up with, Pe- with John Cena as Peacemaker. Yes! And Dr. Psycho is there. <laughs> it's still Toby Hale. <laughs> 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 but I have to say, I we have talked shit about uh, DC and WB a lot over the years on a whole spectrum of podcasts. I think it's the one thing that holds the Pulp Podcast Network together. But I have to say, post-Justice League, I've been really enjoying a lot of the big swings the DC movies have made. Even for stuff that's not that super not everyone's cup of tea, like Joker and Birds of Prey— I appreciate how distinct and uncharted these movies are getting. I think 84 owes a lot more to those movies than necessarily does uh, even the original, which is still made in in kind of the uh, faux Marvel, like regular superhero movie mode. Like I, I, I love seeing DC become the studio of big swings. Yeah, I think that's also the distinctive way to play the DC universe. Well. That's its strength. Yeah, that's what the comics are all about. Is it's a yeah, it's one universe, but everything is so super distinct from one another. They're they're so different from one another, and they're capable of very different types of storytelling and tones. And to see the movies kind of embrace that is great, and is definitely much needed. Um, and that's not saying I, I don't buy into all the Marvel movies are exactly the same. Stuff, tone wise or, or no. anything else there's cohesion but um i don't subscribe to that notion in any way i think that's that's bullshit but it has been so nice to see even if it doesn't work all the time it doesn't necessarily fit the characters all the time to see an attempt to let's go the exact opposite of what anybody would expect let's take a completely different type of movie and place these characters into it and that's not to say that 84 is necessarily a completely different type of movie, but 
it's it, it's it's playing in a different playground. It's it's not playing by the same amount of the same type of rules. It's going for not necessarily a completely different tone, but hey, you know how everyone kind of goes this way? Let's go this way. Let's let's go for a different type of color palette. Let's go for a different type of energy. You know, everyone kind of ends in, in this sort of way. Let's instead end this way and let's go for this messaging versus something that's more understandable or is so in the background. Like I love Marvel movies, but I wish their mess like what they're going for wasn't just used as structure and yeah. was more at the forefront. Yeah, again, again, uh, going back to like Spider-Man: Far From Home, that's probably the closest, like next to the Guardians movies, that's the closest I've seen to Marvel making a idea movie or a message movie first and foremost. And they seem to be going more towards that direction themselves. So I, I'm very happy to see other studios kind of uh, laying down the groundwork there and showing what you can do with movies like these. It's weird to think that Thor: The Dark World is technically about. The creation of Al Qaeda <laughs> by the by America and Russia, like that's what Thor: The Dark World is about. It's very strange to think about that. What are you talking about, Mike? Thor: The Dark World is about Darcy getting an intern, almost directed by Patty Jenkins. Oh, we came back around. <laughs> so, so even if you don't like '84, goddamn appreciate it, and please rewatch it because it's actually really good. Like, really, really good, and I'm really excited to see... I'm excited to get out of the past for Wonder Woman and see what the uh, hell she's up to post-Justice League, but... I want to um, see her on Twitter. And I'm really interested to see, tone-wise, what Jenkins does next. I know, because this... As much as there is a through-line to the original, this is such a completely distinct film. I, I want to know what she pulls out of her hat for a third one, because... It's not going to be anything like this one or what came before or like any of the other DC movies. It's very exciting. Yeah, and Jenkins has so many different types of uh, movies in the, this kind of realm that she she loves and likes to likes to pull from that it could kind of be anything. Oh, watch her do a League of One movie that's just Diana versus a fucking dragon. <laughs> <laughs> now I really want there to be Diana versus a fucking dragon. Give give us that talking lion we were promised in the first movie. <laughs> Before we wrap up, one thing I was wanting to do is, Mike, do you want to just do like a lightning round where we just bring up random things we liked about the movie that we couldn't get through in conversation? I just want to nerd out about this movie about after talking about it intellectually for an hour. Sure. First and foremost, I fucking love how it opens with the one Wonder Woman thing we were not given in her origin in the first movie. The Amazon Trials. A uh, big smile on my face the whole time. Like, oh, and I love how, I love her doing that as a child, too. That was great. <laughs> oh, no, it's it. Patty Jenkins delivered on the Wonder Woman version of the Danger Room. <laughs> well, a, a scene that just... Every piece of dialogue had to have been written by Johns. Every <laughs> piece of dialogue just sounded like, like, okay, this is, Johns was like, I'm writing this scene myself. You'll see, you'll see, you'll see. It's, <laughs> every piece Everybody of dialogue. stand the fuck back. The, ma the magician <laughs> is at work. That's another another scene that plays so much better the second time, because instead of being confused by what that, 
what that scene served for the rest of the story. It's like, oh, this just explained the entire movie to us. Okay. I love prologue to do that. Uh, Speaking of things we didn't get in the first movie, they found a way to deliver on the invisible jet and name checked it and let that moment be as glorious as humanly possible. (laughs) Just no chill whatsoever. Here's Wonder Woman's invisible jet. Laugh about this for 10 minutes. There, it's done. We never have to return to it again. (laughs) And we used it for the most beautiful scene in the movie, so you can't say it's tacked on. And it's magic, like Amazonian magic. So there you go. (laughs) I fucking love little details, like side characters having personalities. Like the fact that the mall robbers all have their own personality and conflicting moralities as established in a five minute scene. Just mwah. Oh, yeah. God, the amount of character work that went into this picture. Like, like you said, like those robbers, like. Oh, God, he's taking a hostage. She's just... This is too far for me. Like, one of them's blonde with, like, a mohawk and glasses because they're semi-bad dudes. Which is great, which is... I mean, I don't mean to get, like, nostalgic, but the movies did used to do that shit a lot, especially in the 80s. It's only, like, more modern where every side character is just kind of there, except for, like, maybe three, two or three, especially random goons. Remember how happy we were in Logan when we could actually point out henchmen? Yes. Like, that's it's important to, I think, action movies. Like, henchmen or uh, not even necessarily henchmen. Like, I mean, I would not call Maxwell's assistant a henchman or henchwoman. <laughs> but you, everyone who works at Black Gold, you can put, pinpoint and you remember. And that's really fucking important. <laughs> I love the character of Max's put-upon assistant, who he clearly has a very close relationship, and he's deeply upset when he can't find her in the third act. <laughs> like there, there's just an, impl- an implied, strained friendship there that's existed for many years, and it's without a single line of exposition or any character beats with that assistant. She's DC's Bernard. She actually also was blown up by Superman in Dawn of Death. <laughs> McNary's ass exploded and killed everyone. <laughs> uh, I got. I fucking love how this movie hinges on a "I don't want power as much as I want my son's love" kind of ending that somehow isn't schmaltzy and actually does feel real. It was very beautiful. Yeah, I like that. Not to mention, it's just so fucking cool to see Wonder Woman in full costume. Doing Wonder Woman shit around town. Stopping crimes. Terminator running. Which is her signature move in this film. (laughs) I would like to take a moment to say that, dear comic book movies, if we can have the superhero lead character fight crime in the movie, that would be great. Because this was a rare treat, seeing Wonder Woman fight crime and do superhero stuff. That didn't have to do with the main plot. Uh, we, we occasionally get that with Spider-Man. And, and then occasionally it's cut out like in Far From Home. But goddamn, is it nice whenever that happens? Like, it, it's weird how it's almost a lot of times it's bad comic book movies that show that. Daredevil. Ben Affleck's <laughs> Daredevil is one of the few comic book movies that show the superhero fighting crime throughout the picture. That doesn't have to do with the main goddamn plot. 
I love how superhero movies have accidentally become early 2000s comics, where the superheroes are just celebrities who hang out in a Big Brother house together. So much so that it became a plot point in Spider-Man Homecoming, where the Avengers wouldn't actually fight crime and Spider-Man was confused. <laughs> also, a uh, fun fact, the um, little black girl in the, in the mall is, uh, because that was filmed in Virginia, is actually local in my state. Hey! Yeah, she was actually interviewed in the local news uh, about a week ago. You're going to be standing across from her at a job interview one day. Probably. Um, she'll be more qualified. Another uh, local fact, the, the dude who wished for the farm and just got nothing but cows outside of his house, that is the husband of my local weather anchor. I, I, I was I was uh, taking special notice of him rewatching that the other night. I was like, wow, that, that is a kept man right there. As a proud house husband. Also, I go going back to like the little girls. I love how much Diana interacts with children shamelessly I in this know. movie. I'm so glad so many people are pointing that out and, and and loving it. It's like, yeah, more of that, please. It's like we're only a couple of years away from. Well, Iron Man can interact with a little kid, but he has to be mean to him, or else it'll be weird. To, like, no, no, superheroes can just be best friends with kids now. It's, it's fine. These are childhood characters. Let it go. I know. Yes. These are children's characters. Shut up, Internet. Um, That's why I know he looks like a monster in the opening scene of Justice League. But I really will always love the video camera uh, iPhone recorded scene of Superman with the two kids. Uh, if they had just cropped it down to where it was just the S, that would have been my favorite Superman scene in hit movie history. Can they just refilm that with mustacheless Cavill and put it back in? <laughs> Considering how petty all the Snyder Cut shit is getting, I'm sure we're going to get a Whedon scene recreated with the original cast with no mustache. <laughs> there, you, you did one thing right. Jared Leto, what are you doing here? He broke in. Using his replicants. Oh, God, he can't see anywhere. He's falling over the furniture. <laughs> he can see with his drones. I know we're getting into Blade Runner territory. <laughs> uh, I, I'm done on my hot takes, if, uh, if you have anything else to add. No, I, I just really like Wonder Woman 1984, and I want everyone to know that. We want justice for Wonder Woman, okay? Do, do not let Wonder Woman 1984 be the final victim of 2020. It's too late. It is. I just say how I just just to go back around. I say how fucking ironic it is to me that everyone rejected a movie with this kind of message. And then like three weeks later, there was an attempted coup. Yeah, I don't want to say everyone's heads in the wrong fucking place, but it feels like, you know, fuck you for rejecting the movie that has the message that the that is the exact opposite of this. But that's, you know, that's just me putting my foot down. Yeah, it's it, it's been hard not to like cynically like uh, shake your head at the amount of hatred this movie about having compassion for everyone, including your enemies, has gotten. It's like, oh, we're, we're not ready for this at all, are we? We're not ready for you, Wonder Woman. That's why I am confident that it will come back around and everyone will appreciate it. In a world where Superman Returns eventually was appreciated, I think Wonder Woman 84 will get the love that the first film got as well. Grant, I know it stars a lady, which is part of the problem here, but... And she made that nasty video where she sang for 
for five seconds. Oh, yeah. I, I know that was the worst thing that happened in 2020, and everyone is still viscerally angry about hearing about that video and not actually watching it. Anyway, before we get angrier, <laughs> um, if you liked us talking about Wonder Woman 1984, or if you just want to yell at us for talking about Wonder Woman 1984, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, you know, whichever way you like. We just like reading reviews and stuff. Um, and of course, you can find the podcast on boxofficepulp.com, on Twitter at boxofficepulp, Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast, and, you know, all other fine places the podcasts are found such as amazon music stitcher yeah I mentioned apple podcasts i can be found horrormovieshub.com and at lucky deck napier on twitter all right and you can catch me at mondo funky on twitter where i tweet every once in a blue moon and you can check out the back catalog of our many other fine pulp podcast network shows on pulp podcast network dot wordpress dot com uh, Cody's on Twitter too, but he's not here to tell us the uh, the handle, and I know it, but since he's not here, I'm not going to say it. <laughs> Find him. Wish for Cody. <laughs> no, I renounce my wish. Unfortunately, the consequences of wishing for Cody is Cody. He just pops into your apartment, and starts raiding your fridge. I'm going to make a drink. I have an old beer, some cigarette ashes, and cough syrup. I can make this work. I called a flaming Cody. Within hours, the fire department is called to your apartment. It's a real monkey's paw situation. Oh, by the way, I fucking love that this movie just flat out says it's a monkey's paw situation. We've all heard of monkey's paw. We all know how the monkey's paw works. This is a monkey's paw. Let's use monkey's paw logic to deal with this. Yes, please, movies, you, you're allowed to reference, like, storytelling and stuff to to give us, like, easy explanations. Like, we believe that in the world of movies, movies exist. So you can do that. Like, it's okay. I, a I vampire won't. in this day and age? I know. It's appreciated. You know, not everything has to be, oh, my God, people are coming back from the dead. What could this be? Like, <laughs> you could just be like oh my god this is a zombie from all those books and movies and shit it's cool it's okay i'll always love robert kirkman being very very confused as to why nobody says zombie in the walking dead tv show it's like geez i know i know the romero movies don't exist but the concept does i say zombie all the fucking time in my comic anyway before we go down another rabbit hole i, I renounce this podcast This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.